0: This was the time of Patrick Bateman and, you know, Wall Street, Arbitrage, M&A, everyone making shit ton of money in finance. And I
1: didn't. One of the first kind of panics about political correctness, this kind of obsession in the culture with the control of symbols and the way that people talk, and then, of course, the backlash against that, which was in the early 90s. Uh, And then after the failure of Occupy, it was just a few years before we had this explosion of symbolic politics.
2: The protests that have happened, and some of them were like, you actually, I have to work hard to remember that there was something called Occupy Wall Street. This manifests this um, lack of durability, of moments of hope and moments of attempts of change and the lack of accumulation. It's almost like when you remake a movie rather than when you accumulate social struggles towards a higher purpose.
3: Hey, welcome to the 100th episode of Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. We thought we'd take this opportunity to say welcome to all our new listeners and to state or restate what this whole thing is about. Alpha Bunga Bunga is myself, Alex Hohealy, and George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe. Over the past 30 or so months that we've been doing this, we've sought to answer the question, is politics back? And if so, how and where? And along with a whole range of other ensuing questions, how might popular forces take charge of it, take charge of politics, of history? Before I say any more and introduce the 14 contributors to this anniversary episode, I've got to get these short plugs in, so bear with me. If you don't yet follow us on social media, we're at BungaCast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This is a free episode of the type that comes out every 2 weeks and if you've been enjoying these for a little while might we suggest subscribing to our Patreon where we put out original episodes on alternating weeks. Those Patreon episodes involve deeper analyses of a specific question or roundups of global politics. We have reading clubs and occasional appearances from some of our regular guests which you'll hear more about in just a second. So that's patreon.com/bungacast where you can sign up from $5 a month for access to all our original paywalled episodes. And just as a little extra enticement, here's a preview of what we've got coming up in early 2020. We're discussing ecofascism. There's a whole series on the professional managerial class. We're assessing J.G. Ballard's relevance to our times. There's the ongoing global protest explosion, where we're looking at Hong Kong, Haiti, Chile, and other places besides a retrospective on the Arab Spring and recent eruptions in Lebanon, Sudan, and so on, and music at the end of the end of history. So, like for anyone who grew up in the 90s or 2000s in the West, the 2008 global financial crisis and its political consequences over the past decade felt something like a flash flood in the desert. There was nothing happening, and suddenly it was like everything was happening. But it also seemed like a lot of people were losing their minds over this, thinking politics had gone crazy, or that some evil forces had emerged out of nowhere to take politics rightward, or that we were going back to the 1970s, or if you prefer, to the 1930s. This sort of hysteria became so pronounced from around 2016 onwards, in the UK and the US, but not limited to those places, that we decided it needed to be called out, Our name for it is Neoliberal Order Breakdown Syndrome. We see this as the inability of liberal establishments to accept, explain, and respond to political change. And that's the thing here. The assumption on the part of political establishments since the end of the Cold War was that all important questions were basically settled, that there was only one model to follow. The world was going to gradually converge around the formula of Western liberal democracy. That's what normal was. And if you weren't normal yet, you just needed a little pushing along, sometimes by disinterested experts, sometimes by international institutions, sometimes by aerial bombing campaigns, all the way to normality. But for us, these are exciting times. It's an opening. The past 30 years were, in fact, abnormal because there was no longer any systemic challenge to capitalism. So in this special episode, we've invited some of our favorite guests to reflect on what one event personal or political, most captures the past 30 years since 1989 for them. We hope that this all serves as a prompt to think about the end of history period that announced itself with the fall of the Berlin Wall, to think about whether we're still in the end of history, or if the breakdown of the neoliberal order means genuine change may be possible again. The 14 contributions you'll now hear are guests we've had on Alpha Bunga Bunga over the past two years, and that we reckon are some of the most clever thinkers around on the left today. They're mates of ours who are always game for probing these sorts of questions. So thank you very much to them, and thank you to everyone who's been on Alpha Bunga Bunga over our first 100 episodes. Right then, so the first seven voices you'll now hear in order are Marin Tom, David Broder, Ashley Frawley, Catherine Liu, Angela Nagel, Benjamin Fogel, and Alex Gurvich. We'll then have a brief little chat amongst the three of us, Alex, George, and Phil, before you then hear, in order of appearance once again, David Adler, Amber Lee Frost, Anton Yeager, James Hartfield, Lee Phillips, Lee Jones, and Carl Sharrow. If you don't recognize the voices and want to check who's who, the names and timestamps of their segments are in the show notes below. Finally, BungaCast listener, If you want to offer your take on the one event that most captures the past 30 years since 1989, we would very much love to hear it. You can send us it via audio, video, or text. Uh, Send it to us on Twitter or email. Our email address is alphabungabunga at gmail.com. And once again, we're at BungaCast on all social media platforms. So right now, here's our guests on the 30 years since 1989.
4: So what characterizes it for me is is the love parade phenomenon, and um, I'm going to talk about it in a second, but I want to talk about it because I think the love parade for me represents this kind of tiny moment of optimism and the almost potential of absolute freedom that was felt uh, in the post-political of the very early 90s. I don't know if any you know, you youngsters are familiar with the love parade. It was a really, really famous sort of electronic dance music parade. And it began in 1989 in West Berlin in Germany, which was like a couple of months later. It was just Berlin. Um, and it was held every year in summer, um, basically until 2003. And it was sort of a club night but it was registered as a political demonstration with the city council, so it was basically a parade that walked up and down the Kurfürstendamm in Berlin, and um, basically it grew exponentially from year to year. So, started in 1989 with like 150 people, and then already in 1990 you had like 2,000, and then in 1991, you had 6,000, then next year 15,000, 30,000, 100,000, and by 1997 it was a million. I want to say that it was not coincidental that the love parade happened in Berlin and that, uh, that it was in Berlin that techno music really took off after the wall came down and how the, this kind of movement was embraced by the city uh, itself. uh, It's kind of symbol of this new age in which meaning was meaningless and everything was full of potential. And, so my, so my growing up coincided with this post-political moment. I was 19 in 1995. And this is sort of the age when you perceive the world that everything is possible. At a moment in time, you know, when the zeitgeist was that everything was possible. So, so I think my, 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 my youth coincided with the moment in time in this kind of really particular way. And... Uh, You know, techno music itself seems to be this kind of music. It's not music that you listen to, it's music that you experience. So you can't sit down and listen to techno music. You have to be in the moment, you have to feel it. It's purely phenomenological. It's, you know, it has no beginning, no middle, and an end. It's it's just purely beats per minute. And so it has, it's it's in itself, uh, outside kind of being able to be described, so, so I grew up in, as a child during the Cold War, and in Germany it's quite, I think it was a bit more felt, because, you know, I, I remember going on demonstrations with my parents against Ronald Reagan's Pershing rockets, who were at the, station, at the time stationed in Germany. It, it sort of felt as if politics was going towards something, and it didn't look good. There was a lot of tension, and it felt quite unsustainable. And then in the sort of mid-80s, this kind of perestroika thing happened. And to me, to me because I was growing up with this, it, it felt like a permanent process. So, so because when you're a child, time moves quite slowly. <laughs> and so as soon as I was sort of age 13 or so, perestroika was in full swing. And it felt to me kind of normal. It was like that's how history worked. So the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall, so over the next two years, that felt just basically like a natural historical development to me. And so the, this kind of uh, development wasn't quite as big a shock to me as it was for my parents, who were completely lost. You know, like, like the left, as such, was lost. All leftist organizations were dissolved. So my parents were members of the German Communist Party, dissolved, I was, when I was a teenager, I was a member of the kind of communist youth in my parents' party, dissolved in 1990. I mean, even the RAF dissolved in 1990. So there was no right as such as well. Um, But what was also felt that there was kind of a tension gone, as if you removed like a tight belt. And uh, this was a kind of unique feeling that there was absolutely no context anymore. And what I want to emphasize that this is like this first moment where you could feel, I think, absolutely and utterly free. So, so every matter so from getting East Germany to be like West Germany to the regulation of public life, that, that was already solved, that problem. You didn't need extra bureaucracy. You would just do what's logical. You would just let history take its course, and everything would be fine. So you don't need politics, but also, and I think this is really important, you don't need authority, and this is what I want to emphasize with this, this feeling that there was the potential for freedom in this kind of, we don't need any kind of context. And that also means authority, regulation, um, anybody telling you what to do, it will all solve itself. And uh, yeah, the love parade itself saw itself outside politics. It really expressed this new feeling that it has no context you know it really resisted any kind of de- definition. Nobody knew it, it wasn't a demonstration it was was registered as a demonstration, but it wasn't. was it a celebration? Was it a display? Was it just a carnival? Which causes does it uh, oppose support? It didn't do any of these. You know it resisted all of these kind of definitions. This would be unimaginable today. this kind of absolute resisting of meaning and even the kind of that the, 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 You called it love parade in English, instead right? Liebesparade. is kind of important because um, people always think, oh, you, you adopt a foreign language word to make things more clear. But actually it was adopted to kind of resist meaning. So, you know, well, as you say, history catches up with you and authority returned, uh, not least with the help who had sort of reconstituted, so reconstituted itself by the late 90s.
5: Right. So, um, I think the moment which most characterizes the post 1989 period is the fall of Silvio Berlusconi's first government in December, 1994. Um, Berlusconi had become prime minister uh, in uh, March of that same year, uh, after winning the elections for his new party, Forza Italia, a new party of the center right modeled around his business empire. Uh, its majority in Parliament decisively relied on the post-fascists of Allianza Nazionale and the Lega Nord, which was also a party just coming into its second general election. Uh, obviously, the Lega Nord now is the uh, most popular party in Italy. Uh, and then under Umberto Bossi's uh, leadership, it was surging in the polls and, in fact, uh, elected more MPs than the other party uh, in the '94 election, uh, which was the big election, which destroyed the, the traditional parties of, of center left, center right. Uh, the Communist Party had collapsed uh, in 1991, forming a new center left. Uh, the Christian democracy had been destroyed in the corruption scandals of 92, 93, uh, the so-called Bribesville affair. Uh, and the Socialist Party was also dying uh, for the same reason. So we had the the end of the traditional post-war parties, the big uh, class blocks, with mass parties, with mass membership, and so on. So Berlusconi's arrival, obviously, you know, billionaire tycoon, uh, using his TV empire. Um, you know, some recent surveys have have focused on his um, use of, of of basically private TV to sell a certain image of the consumer, uh, replacing the voter or the militant in the party. So you know, it's very well worn the kind of discussion of the way in which Berlusconi. Uh, Shook up the old forms of doing politics. You no longer have like parties with local branches or Theoretical journals or programs or whatever very personalized and so on Uh, But what I think is more interesting is the fall of his government and the kind of anti-politics That that represents the fall of Berlusconi's first government in December 1994 uh, introduced a lot of the themes which we can see around the world today in the use of uh, the courts and justice and anti-corruption allegations uh, to pursue political ends, unnatural alliances of ideologically diverse parties, uh, supposedly just standing up for common decency in, in politics and such like, but also the, the celebration of technocracy, of experts, of unelected figures as managers of the political game intervening when democracy fails of course this this wasn't entirely new just in 1994 um, but what was different in in 94 uh, with the end of berlusconi's government that december was the way in which the judicial offensive against berlusconi uh combined with a political one Uh, in particular uh what i suppose listeners might know is that the uh the fall of berlusconi's first government basically owed to uh, a pact between the PDS, the the center-left party, the heir to the Communist Party, which uh, would eventually grow into today's Democrats, Um, a small party called the Popular Party, which was based on the old Christian Democrats, uh, but also the Lega Nord. Uh, And Berlusconi was replaced in um, January 1995 by uh, a government led by Lamberto Dini, a lifelong uh, public uh, banking technocrat, but who then led a coalition uniting uh, the centre-left, but also the the Lega Nord was was in the governmental majority. And these parties together formed a parliamentary bloc which lifted to power a government entirely composed of independent technocrats who carried out austerity reforms, basically free from any kind of direct uh, electoral pressure. Uh, Indeed, the government was formed precisely in the interest of uh, putting off um, the planned election. Uh, After Berlusconi's government fell uh, in December 1994, the most direct and immediate cause for which uh, was um, him coming under investigation for ties to mafia, uh, the Lager basically began to swing its support behind the idea of an alternative and technocratic government. Uh, and this was uh, consecrated on uh, December 23rd, 1994, uh, with the so called Pact of the Sardines. Uh, Umberto Bossi, uh, the Lega Nord leader, uh, invited Massimo D'Alema uh, to his home, uh, along with the leader of the Popular Party, who I mentioned, the, uh, the former Christian Democrats, and they basically set up, sat down and set about planning a new government. Uh, which would unite basically all of the main forces except for uh, Berlusconi. Uh, Their aim was to uh, create a technocratic government, which could force through uh, particularly cuts to the pension system while also holding off the spectre of fresh elections. This was one of the ways in which the Italian centre-left, and indeed had recently started to call itself the centre-left, Uh, began its long march to the neoliberal centre-right. This was uh, indeed a a sort of cultural moment in which the idea with the end of the so-called First Republic, the end of the uh, post-war parties, this was a moment in which the idea of rationalisation and cleaning up politics and narrowing the state and getting rid of bureaucracy were, were kind of transversal across the entire political field. Even Berlusconi himself said these things. So the, the, the so-called Pact of the Sardines of December 1994 uh, was the meeting at Bossi's home. And kind of the idea is that, uh, you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't actually ever live in his official, or say his MP's residence in Rome, uh, so he didn't keep any food there. So he had the ex-communist leader D'Alema around for a chat about forming a new government, uh, but there was no food to be had in the house, only uh, an old tin of sardines. Uh, Dalema would later distance himself even from this memory, uh, claiming that he hadn't actually had any of the sardines himself, uh, a bit of aI uh, didn't inhale uh, kind of moment on his part. <laughs> but nonetheless, the political nonetheless, the political importance of the of the pact of the sardines uh, was basically the the end of uh, even the appearance of, um, sort of blocks of center left and center right. Uh, in favor of a uh, a kind of anti-politics based on just on on these ideas of rationalization of putting technocrats in charge,
1: I think what's probably one of the more significant moments of the past thirty years was the occupy movement. Um, and some of the lessons that were taken from that or perhaps not taken um in many ways it was kind of similar, although, to a much smaller scale much much smaller scale in terms of significance um similar to the fall of the berlin wall in the way that it signified the exhaustion of a particular approach to doing politics so obviously the fall of the berlin wall you know in a in a much bigger way signified for many the end of history um that you know um basically capitalism is all there is you can change a few things um but it was just piecemeal democratic reform from there on out um and occupy represented this sort of uh the culmination of movements that had sought to have these big public spectacles as protests so we had um big marches and the carnivalesque protest and um and the, the, this movement kind of combined aspects of those things, um, but also attempted to kind of, you know, reimagine um, different ways in, of living and alternatives to capitalism and alternatives to capitalist democracy and so on, but also in a really um, end of history kind of way. So there was this real um, rejection of big ideas, rejection of totalizing discourses, of Uh, attempts to give direction and meaning to the movement, because I suppose because of the realization of what had happened in the past when, uh, you know, you had these vanguards that attempted to give movement and meaning to politics uh, or to political movement, you know, it all sort of descended into authoritarianism. And so the idea was to kind of have this leaderless movement and almost like this demandless movement where demands were kind of an afterthought. Now, of course that couldn't but fail. I mean, there was no clear possibility or even criteria for success. Uh, It was just this expressive moment, which is what politics had become for quite a long time, these sort of expressions of discontent. Um, And in that way, they operated as like a a kind of safety valve for all sorts of emotions um, that might otherwise have been directed toward more coherent for social movements, or perhaps at a different time period would have been directed towards um, more coherent movements. Um, and I think what's interesting is that after the fall of the Berlin Wall, you had one of the first kind of panics about political correctness, this kind of obsession in the culture with the control of symbols and the way that people talk. And then, of course, the backlash against that, which was in the early 90s. Uh, And then, interestingly, after the failure of Occupy, it was just a few years before we had this explosion of symbolic politics, of um, this idea that most everything, most every social problem is downstream from culture and language and symbols. And so if you just kind of tinker with the way people talk, um, social justice will be found. And I, of course, I'm sort of... um, Maybe this is a bit of a caricature, but I think it, it, there's certainly there is certainly a, a loss of faith in um, in the power of ideas to um, or argument to kind of work through uh, or understanding to work through social problems uh, that's happened. And I think so. We we've we basically are still stuck in this. There is no alternative. And we're and I think what happens when you get stuck there is we start to descend into the politics of symbols and you see this happen twice. So I think it's interesting that after the fall of the Berlin Wall, you had the rise of symbolic politics and uh, political correctness. And then after 2011, you had a similar sort of um, rise of of the politics of language. So I think these have become really significant. We're still sort of working that out um, as our in the culture. You know, what does politics look like? in the end of history. So
0: in 1986, I got a four-year fellowship, graduate fellowship, for City University of New York's PhD program in French. And it was, when, on paper, when I got it, it looked great. I mean, this was a long, long time ago, but I ha- it was $11,000 a year on um, fellowship and everything else paid for. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a king's ransom. I mean, the studio apartments in New York were still like five, $600 a month then, which, you know, was unaffordable to me. My parents were not going to help me. And, um, but I, I thought I could make it. I, I thought I could do it with that. And I would work in the summer and, um, you know, I, I was going to be able to live with $11,000. I didn't really want to do French, but I was like, it was the, it was the Cold War and French was still considered an important language because Europe was an important front and there was a whole glamour of that. I mean, there were very fucked up reasons why I chose French, but let's just say that it had to do with, you know, pre pre fall kind of ideas of what was important. And, um, I go and get my first paycheck or at uh, that October and, um, the, the paycheck is much less than I thought it was, and it actually was going to make it impossible for me to live without going into debt or actually having um, a part-time to full-time job. I mean, it was going to be like eight, nine hundred dollars a month, and then what I got on the paycheck was actually five, six hundred dollars. And um, I I asked the woman at the fellowship office, like, what happened? And, you know, this is wrong because I'm still getting $11,000 a year, and this is a lot less than I expected. And she said, oh, no, the Reagan tax reforms just went through. Fellowships are now taxable income. And I, like, it just knocked my fucking socks off. Like, I was really you know, like not that politically active, always, you know, left leaning. My dad had been communist sympathizing and, um, I'd never felt so powerless in my life. I realized that like I had been bamboozled and that the fellowship that I accepted was not going to be the generous fellowship. And the woman was very sympathetic. She was like, Oh yeah, a lot of our graduate students are having a really difficult time with this because (laughs) under Jimmy Carter, before Reagan, I guess as part of, you know, New Deal redistributive policies, um, graduate fellowships were not taxable income. And Now, when I look back on it, I just think that that was the first blow of austerity and neoliberalism defeated, you know, delivered to me, like 22 year old me, like straight in the face. And, um, my response was anger and I was like, so fucking furious and, I, I'd been used to my whole life working and hustling and I, I think I should have gotten out of, gone out of graduate school right then and there, but I'm, I was, I was very stubborn and I stayed in, I look back on this now and I think, um, the rich and corporations and, um, Wall Street guys gotten a tax cut out of the Reagan tax reforms and I got, and graduate students got to pay taxes on their income. And I just thought the absurdity of that was so intense. Like, this was a public institution, and I was getting public funds, and then they were taxing me on these funds. And, you know, the the outrage and the anger and sort of the atomization or you know, what to do with it was so raw. And, like, austerity politics and neoliberalism just delivered blow after blow to us. So, like, the freshness of that, we kind of forgot. So when you first asked me this question, I was like, you know, I didn't know what the fall of the wall was going to mean. I didn't know it was going to mean the collapse of the humanities. I didn't know um, how deeply it was going to destroy the kind of social democratic life world that the 1970s U.S. was that I was growing up in. But in 1986, with the Reagan tax reforms, um, I knew that I had gone to from... Almost surviving on a fellowship to not surviving at all, and I also, um, and that was just so fucked up. But I did this other thing that we all do um, under capitalism, is that we individualize the problem. Like I internalized it, and when I looked back on all these decisions I'd made, I blamed myself. I was like, why didn't I just go out and get another job. Why didn't I just say this is fucked up, by'm leaving? Like why did I make bad choices? that That's the sort of internal narrative that this immediately um, sparked in me. Um, why did I go to see the University of New York? Why didn't I apply to other um, graduate programs so I could negotiate better terms? Like I started to think of myself as someone who was, like really bad um, entrepreneur, make or bad bad at business because we were all like fucking in business now. And in the social democratic seventies, when I was still coming up in the world, like I thought there would be places where, um, we could pursue you know, knowledge or do stuff that wasn't going to be crushed by the market and such. dry. And so, and now I just feel like, um, um, we're also a nerd to that, but I came out of a really different life world, a life world that I saw destroyed piece by piece. And so, when I've been reading about what happened to East Germany after 1989, and when I see these Germans here, cause I'm in Berlin now, I feel like, um, we share the same kind of shock. Like you're born into a world and then it's taken from you piece by piece. Like you're not willing to, and, and nothing is, um, you've signed on for. And then everyone tells you like, it's democracy. Like we're free here. This is democracy. Aren't you free? Don't you feel free? Like, this is so great. And, They love showing on the 30th anniversary of the fall of law, all these people running over the wall, like everyone's just dying to be in the West. Everyone wants to be in the West. Well, I did not fucking sign on for the kinds of sadism that um, austerity politics and capitalism um, forced me into. I did not sign on to that. And I don't think any of these East Germans did either.
6: I think the best symbol of Ireland and it's kind of transition to um, a, an open society and you know one in which the ideas of the end of history kind of became part of the the, the ideology of the ruling class um, was this thing called the web summit um, and essentially it was like a global summit of tech leaders who would come to Ireland um, and it was seen as a, a matter of great pride and um, but ultimately, the web summit had to actually leave because the infrastructure, from the Wi-Fi to the transport infrastructure, wasn't good enough. Um, I thought it was a great kind of symbol of the hollowness um, of Ireland's, uh, you know, post-colonial e- end of history project because um, the idea was essentially that they could build, uh, you know, an, an entirely new economy without doing the tough. Uh, nation-building work of actually investing in infrastructure, public infrastructure, and so on. So the Web Summit had to leave after all of the, you know, the propaganda that surrounded (laughs) it. So my experience of uh, the end of history was in particular how it impacted on Ireland. Um, Ireland uh, in the 90s um, started to boom, uh, and one of the reasons for this was they – a low corporation tax that brought in a lot of the headquarters of the the major Silicon Valley companies. Um, And it was a very unexpected kind of boom because Ireland had always been very poor by European standards. Um, Ireland had been kind of an an unusual case, an outlier, in that it was was a British colony. It had had for hundreds of years uh, all of these rebellions from the United Irishmen to the Fenians, which were always kind of impossible rebellions that were put down. Eventually one was successful uh, in 1916. And uh, when Ireland became independent, it had, as, uh, as post-colonial countries do, this big problem that basically its economy had been designed to service the empire. Um, and so it had to build up uh, you know, its own national economy and indigenous industrial base. Um, it kind of had a hard time doing that. And so eventually in the 90s, uh, they got this idea um, to base the entire economy on low corporation tax. So, for example, Apple um, was reported to be paying 0.02%. Officially, it's 12, but there are all these loopholes. And so at the time in the 90s, when this kind of seeming economic miracle happened, it coincided with the idea of the end of history uh, and uh, also the, the new economy idea that the, the future of um, prosperous economies would be not rooted in industry and labor, but in kind of the knowledge economy, finance, tech, and so on. So it kind of became this model model in a way, a model society for like Popper's open society and, you know, the the end of history society that had put behind it all of the romantic nationalism and the romantic kind of anti-imperialism of its past and had moved on to become this kind of technocratic open society. And what what happened, basically, was, in many ways it did. I mean, it was praised, for example, in Wired magazine in 1998. They had an article called Ireland, the Silicon Isle, uh, as this kind of ideal model for small countries. Um, uh, recently, uh, bernard and Lévy has said that the Irish are the heroes of Europe who resist the winds of populism. So it's also kind of seen as a... a um, a kind of liberal success story, in that it moved from these older passions toward, you know, uh, being um, cosmopolitan and liberal, and so on. Um, now, the problem with that is that basically, if you look at the Irish economy today, um, the problems that it has are essentially landlordism, economic dependence on uh, foreign powers, and emigration. Uh, which is exactly the problems that it had under the British Empire uh, and exactly the problems that people were radicalized around and organized around, Um, except that now, because it has imbibed all of these end-of-history ideas, um, it's much harder for Irish people to see these forces as something to organize against because they are so... Um, integrated into the propaganda of um, the open society, the end of history and, and the kind of um, the, the, the cosmopolitanism and the new economy and so on. Um, the thing that kind of brought it not completely crashing down but, but at least uh, caused the narrative some problems was that there was a huge, because it put so much emphasis on spe- uh, speculation, there was a huge... Um, a property bubble burst and then a bank bailout, which was, you know, Ireland has never really recovered from since and, and um, is still paying off in many ways through, you know, uh, 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 eating into public services and so on. Um, but really, it's in terms of, I guess, the ideology of um, the end of history. The idea was that it almost kind of got it almost channeled nationalist sentiment into it somehow kind of co-opted it or it integrated it into, uh, globalization because it was a case of, you know, look, we've finally, uh, become a successful independent nation apart from the British empire. We, sh- we showed them kind of, you know, um, uh, but, uh, really it, um, it was a a kind of poster child for all of those values and 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 the the benefits of a nation putting behind itself you know passions and and um struggles that ultimately just cause a lot of bloodshed and you know maybe aren't quite worth it you know if we if we just um integrate ourselves into the into the end of history, we can be prosperous and we don't have to worry about these things anymore. That was kind of the attraction of those ideas, and the way Ireland is written about it internationally is still very much along those lines. Uh, it is seen as the outlier that is not rebellious and that is very that that is so terrified of what will happen if it stops being this ideal kind of obedient society whether it's to the EU or to the big tech companies that are there for tax purposes um, or whatever it might be, that if it asserts itself in any way, um, that, that it will return to this dark past and we'll be poor again.
7: The
8: thing that I've been thinking about this past few weeks is actually a regional trend in Latin America, and that's the return of the military. I think the first trend we saw was in Honduras in which a uh, democratically elected president, again, uh, was removed by a coup, backed, of course, by our good friends in the White House, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And it was a remarkable event, because this is the first, I think, open military coup you can talk about post-1989. And in this, you have a immense amount of repression that's brought to bear Backed as a defence of democracy, because these things are always portrayed as defence of democracy, that removed the centre-leftist government, and I think this is the first trend you have in the region. And people sort of dismissed Honduras because it's a small country, but you see, this is something which is now happening in more significant cases, and this sort of trend of uh, repressive interventions of in the military, I think, unfortunately, is uh, becoming increasingly apparent if one were to go back to the 90s and the triumphalist narratives of liberal democracy, uh, democratization had finally set in in Latin America. The military had retreated back to the barracks. The dictatorships were over. The region was sinking into democratic stability. Uh, There was peaceful transitions of power. It seemed stable. And in the 2000s, after the sort of political chaos By debt crisis that brought the pink tide in in the late 90s, early 2000s, you have a a period of remarkable economic growth and redistribution. In fact, uh, the first time really since the 50s, 60s period where you see people's living standards significantly improve in the region. But alas, this is no more. Instead, we have a phenomena, and you can see this to an extent in Bolivia. You can see this extent in Brazil and uh i'm you can even see this in peru is that the military is now taking an active role in politics again why is this the case and how is this the case in bolivia you saw military pressure force out a president in terms of evo morales after by all accounts who have looked in depth election that no one actually contests he won you have seen uh Bolsonaro in Brazil appoint more uh, generals to his cabinet than during the height of the military dictatorship. You have seen massive state repression led by the military, including sexual violence and murder in and torture in Chile. You saw uh, the military basically shut down Congress in a move, I'm not gonna go into Peru, it's so complicated, but in a move which is allegedly to save, democ- save uh, democracy in Peru. You've seen a more hardline militarist government in Colombia. So what's behind the return of the military to politics? In essence, we have a situation which in some ways bears some resemblance to uh, the height of the Cold War in the 1960s, except gone is the Soviet Union. Instead, the threat, the existential threat cited by all these governments is Cuba, uh, the last surviving uh, left-wing government of its type in uh The Caribbean and then you have Venezuela and they kind of play the role of the specter haunting uh, politics in Latin America now for the right but essentially you have the promise of liberal democracy is something which in Latin America has been dependent on economic growth and so long as the elite is doing reasonably well uh, and making money they're willing to tolerate uh, to an extent Center leftist governments. But as soon as the economy starts uh, going a little bit south, they tend to not take losing elections very well. And we have seen uh, military pressure used to disguise because the center right seems to A, not be able to win elections against center left governments for the most part, B, not take losing elections well and immediately call them fraudulent. And then C, the way that they tend to the, the politics is going is they uh, move to the extreme right, which is in Latin America combines uh, love of the Bible, Christian shit, as well as uh, nostalgia for military dictatorship and authoritarian rule. So we have here this phenomenon in that the hardening of politics in Latin America has been direct against the center center left, which is pretty similar in some parts of the sixties. And all that, because what I think lies behind that is that the, promise of, uh, I guess, neoliberalism uh, is gone. They, because when they're responding to economic and social crisis, the Latin American right only has one response, and that is, we need more reforms. So uh, your economy is tanking, we need more reforms, we need r- more reforms. And nowhere can that be a package that can be sold to people except anything through authoritarian means. Because uh, the reforms that you've done are actively making lives worse. And they don't seem to be able to restore uh, economic growth. And I think we're reaching the situation in which the sort of promise of democratization over the 90s and 2000s is now gone. And instead, there's only uh, an offer from at least one side, uh, reforms backed up by uh, the repression of the military.
9: I think an underappreciated moment, a kind of turning point since 1989, is the decision by Elizabeth Warren not to run in 2016, not to challenge Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination. The reason that this is important and striking as a moment and an underappreciated moment is that... I think most people agree that 1989 signaled the kind of end of history, the decline of alternatives to capitalism and liberalism, but now 30 years on, it's clear from the United States that a kind of a sense of possibility has re-entered uh, American politics. And in particular, it has suddenly become socially acceptable and even exciting to talk about socialism, the meaning of socialism and sort of mass radical politics. Uh, yes, it's all sort of Kuwait and many different definitions of it, but it's undeniably a function of the unexpected success of Bernie Sanders' primary run in 2016. What people don't realize is that initially it was Elizabeth Warren that people tried to get to run against Hillary Clinton. Uh, after the end of Occupy, and uh, the clearing out of Zuccotti Park, a number of people who had been part of the occupation or uh, and who had watched it decided there needed to be a kind of national political challenge to the Democratic establishment from the left. And there were extensive efforts to try and um, court uh, Elizabeth Warren to challenge Hillary. There were repeated draft Warren campaigns, huge numbers of people involved in that inside and on the margins of the Democratic Party. She had been making a name for herself as a kind of economic, progressive, um, a bit of a thorn in the side of the Obama uh, administration. And um, many begged her repeatedly to run, and she declined. She refused to challenge Hillary Clinton. She refused to take that risk. Um, She wasn't willing to kind of get in the way, really stand on principle. And as a consequence, that kind of left an opening for Sanders, and eventually a number of the people who had been wanting Sanders to run, and even some people who were in the draft Warren campaign started to look elsewhere. And that is the moment, and it's, I don't know the exact date, but I know it was sort of the exhaustion of the draft Warren campaign in 2014 and fifteen that led people to kind of put more pressure on Sanders and look to other people. And Sanders filled that void. And um, I think there's no question that if if Warren had chosen to challenge Hillary, and taken up that space where she was at that point in 2014-15 still a kind of leading figure, much better known than Bernie Sanders, then um, American politics would be much narrower because it would have been a campaign between two committed capitalists about the nature and degrees and ways of regulating capitalism. The word socialism would never have really been mentioned, perhaps except by Hillary to try and smear Warren, but Warren has always committed herself to being much more of the kind of progressive technocrat, and um, um, American politics would have looked quite differently. Um, uh, Sanders would have remained an unknown senator from Vermont. There would n- not have been the same kind of politics drawing people in who hadn't really been participating in politics. Uh, but instead, in one of these examples where kind of individual personal decisions also reflect bar- broader structures, it's a very telling fact about Warren that she was never willing to challenge the democratic establishment and therefore unwilling to step into the ring in 2016 and really says something about the difference between Sanders and Warren, that uh, Sanders was ready to take on that challenge. And uh, I think, Uh, More than differences in policy, it's a real sign of the difference in their conception of politics, that Sanders is the one who um, was really uh, willing to take up that space and commit himself to kind of new movement politics. So he might not be a true socialist by our normal, normal understanding of that, but the decision by Warren is both a kind of contingent, accidental kind of individual moment that people don't realize really happened or haven't paid attention to, but also expresses the kind of um, structures shifting uh, beneath people's feet and now she's playing perennial catch-up with um, Sanders uh, when she was in fact a leading figure until the primary of 2016. So I think her decision not to run in 2016 is a a crucial turning point since 1989 with now all the results that we're aware of.
3: Right. This is Alex Hochili here with Phil Cunliffe and George Hoare. We're just going to reflect a little bit on those initial segments that we've heard before we play the final set of them. So first of all, there's a question about the end of history and the end of the end of history uh, and whether we see today's period as in some ways a return to politics, something that was repressed for 25 years that's come back now or whether we're still seeing the ongoing falling apart of what was the 20th century and its political and social and economic forms. So as a starter, you know, are we still in the end of history? Or are we, as our slogan has it, at the end of the end of history?
7: I think it's definitely the end of neoliberalism is what we're witnessing. And whether or not that amounts to the end of history, or whether the end, um, sorry, the end of the end of history, or whether the kind of post-historical period might have different uh, phases within it is uh, a question that's i suppose will become more apparent to us over the next few years uh, yeah yeah i mean it's
10: it, it definitely feels like something's over but what's coming next i mean the, of course there's no there's no left i mean if if it's good that history's back or if it's if it's maybe coming back then it's very very clear that the or an organized alternative a kind of global movement towards socialism more or less coordinated isn't really there to um <clears throat> to bring these things together and to give some some meaning and political direction to this yeah. to this um clear sense that or clear desire that people have for, for something different
7: i think that's crucial because the you need it needs a for, for us to be able to talk in terms of history, at least in the um, classical terms of the Enlightenment and Hegelian philosophy, from which the idea of the end of history is taken, it needed to have a protagonist. It needed to have a actor subject that was controlling, aiming to shape the story, and was seeking to master the historical process, its direction, flow, and tempo. And that's still precisely what's lacking. So, I mean, if there is if there isn't a left. And there is, you know, I mean, then that seems to me the conclusion that strikes me, at least, then it seems to me it's very difficult to say that it's the end of the end of history, or at least it's something which still has to be qualified with a question mark for now.
3: Mm. So I I think that maybe you're right that we can say that it's the end of neoliberalism, and maybe it's easier, at least to start with, to discuss more specific political categories than something as grandiose as history with a capital H. You know, Fukuyama's thesis was premised on the idea that Western liberal democracy would become the model for the whole world, that there'd be no more uh, innovation, that there would be no new paths charted, that you might have little challenges to it here and there, but basically there was going to be no questioning of what that essential uh, format, pro forma model for the world would be. Uh, and, you know, as some people have pointed out, the force that was the victor of 1989, which was liberalism, ended up actually a victim of its success. That, And you can see this probably most clearly in the place where that victory was the most pronounced. So Eastern Europe, that's where you have these, you know, post-socialist supposedly regimes where today there is in all of those countries a significant amount of nostalgia for the really existing socialist past and that the kind of disappointment with today and actually, it's interesting because Fukuyama already recognized this when he was writing around 1989 uh, that this would be a kind of morose period, that this would be a kind of post-heroic period where you didn't have big passions inflaming people anymore, and things would questions would be rather settled, and that consequently you get a sort of lack of meaning or what mm. uh, Mark Fisher called depressive hedonia. So, yeah, I think it's quite striking that the, you know, the periods 1989
10: to 2019, or maybe, well, at least to like 2010, um, the people were, if you look at the overall cultural mood, it was one of, it was pretty, pretty depressed and pretty pessimistic. um, And this came through in a whole variety of ways. And it's only relatively recently that that has seemed to shift in some ways. But I mean, if you take a step back, really at the, the, the highest level of, of what defines defines our culture it still is quite quite negative and quite um, really absent of any anything which gives you a shock of the new
7: yeah absolutely I suppose one other thing is to think maybe perhaps more concretely in terms of periodization so what's ending and what's beginning and so famously it was the Historian Eric Hobsbawm, who talked about, so he dated, talked in terms of a long 19th century, beginning with the um, French Revolution and ending with the First World War in 1914. So an eight, a 19th century that began in the 18th century, ended in the first decades of the 20th century, followed by a short 20th century, which was bookended by the rise and fall of the Soviet Union, the effort to um, inaugurate a new Epoch in world history and its failure. So the short 20th century from 1917 to 1989, um, which then begs the question as to whether or not this is, I suppose, whether or not 1989 was the start of the long 21st century. Um, Or maybe one wag on Twitter called it, uh, so at Bousafelis424 said maybe 1989 was the real end of the 19th century. So that'd be a very long 19th century a two-century 19th century in fact um, kind of
10: buy one get one free century. <laughs>
7: yeah
10: no i think it's a really it's yeah it's a really good point and i i think that's the value of of, of sort of bringing together a variety of different perspectives from kind of you know politics economics culture philosophy etc to sort of see well actually because it's always very difficult to periodize the present, but if you can do that it does give you it does give you some tools to think well actually what is the what are the most important kind of top line um, aspects of the political situation where we're st- we're in at the moment is are we still in the, the the shadow of the 19th century or the shadow of the 20th century
7: adam Tooze said a long twen- well sorry did he say i think he said a long 20th century book ended by the decline and fall or rather the rise and fall of american power so the rise to power of America, the end of the First World War, 1917, to um, the election of Trump and America's um, reorganization of its relations with the rest of the world in 2016. So you have a um, yeah another kind of contender there. I guess yeah. it is too early. It is too early to tell, I suppose. Um, but I think that theme about whether or not there's drift or mastery, or at least the effort at mastery, whether those are the overriding themes. Of the times would be um, the most important element to bear in mind as to how you classify any particular period.
0: Mm.
3: Right now, back to our guests in order: there, David Adler, Amber Lee Frost, Anton Jaeger, James Hartfield, Lee Phillips, Lee Jones, and Carl Sharrow. Date.
11: December 12th, 1991, from Lawrence H. Summers, Chief Economist of the World Bank. Dirty industries. Just between you and me, shouldn't the World Bank be encouraging more migration of the dirty industries to the least developed countries? I can think of three reasons. One, the measurement of the costs of health impairing pollution depends on the foregone earnings from increased morbidity and mortality. From this point of view, a given amount of health-impairing pollution should be done in the country with the lowest cost, which will be the country with the lowest wages. I think the economic logic behind dumping a load of toxic waste in the lowest-waste country is impeccable, and we should face up to that. Two, the cost of pollution are likely to be nonlinear, as the initial increments of pollution probably have very low cost. I've always thought that underpolluted countries in Africa are vastly underpolluted. Their air quality is probably vastly inefficiently low compared to Los Angeles or Mexico City. Only the lamentable facts that so much pollution is generated by non tradable industries, transport, electrical generation, and that the unit transport costs of solid wastes are so high prevent world welfare enhancing trade in air pollution and waste. Three. The demand for a clean environment for aesthetic and health reasons is likely to have a very high income elasticity. The concern over an agent that causes a one in a million change in the odds of prostrate sick cancer is obviously going to be much higher in a country where people survive to get prostrate sick cancer in that country where under five mortality is 200 per thousand. Also, much of the concern over individual atmosphere discharge is about visibility impairing particulates. These discharges may have very little di- direct health impact. Clearly, trade in goods that embody aesthetic pollution concerns could be welfare-enhancing. While production is mobile, the consumption of pretty air is a non-tradable. The problem with the arguments against these proposals for more pollution in legally developed developing countries, intrinsic rights to certain goods, moral reasons, social concerns, lack of adequate markets, etc., Could be turned around and used more or less effectively against every World Bank proposal for liberalization. 1991 was obviously a very big year for the World Bank and our budding star, Larry Summers. India liberalized, inviting the World Bank to restructure what had previously been a mixed and socialist economy. And Russia, was beginning to open its country, open its economy also to the great wisdom of the World Bank. I think it was at a, a banquet in Bangkok that same year, 1991, the same Lawrence H. Summers asked, what can the West do to drive this process of reform in Russia forward? Stroking his beard, looking out into the audience. Number one, Larry Summers said, it can spread the truth. The laws of economics, it's often forgotten, are like the laws of engineering. There's only one set of laws, and they work everywhere. One of the things I've learned in my short time at the World Bank is that whenever anybody says, but economics works differently here, they're about to say something dumb. Summers would go on to give the most succinct advice to the Russian government that we can define when we look at the question of what was neoliberalism at the end of history. He described it as the three Asians, privatization, stabilization, and liberalization, that must, in his words, all be completed as soon as possible. It goes without saying that Larry Summers would move on from his position at the World Bank to have an illustrious career at the helm of the most powerful institutions of the United States government, and indeed in the world. Uh, And we can treasure this wisdom Uh, Both for its disastrous consequences in the years of fall 1991, but also for the fact that Larry Summers has never once been taken to task for the depth of that destruction and the falsity of his advice and the just sheer utter criminality of his claim that there is only one set of laws and that they work everywhere.
12: So the thing that came to mind was uh, the this recently revived magazine, Tribune, which is one of these venerable publications, the old left, that's just been reclaimed by young leftists. And they adopted this Michael Foot quote as its comeback mission statement, uh, sustaining the old cause with the old weapons. So I'm sorry to say, but the boring obvious truth of the matter is that the primary event of the end of the end of history, at least in America, is Bernie fucking Sanders. <laughs> Um, specifically because he's revived the old cause and the old weapons. Uh, Bernie just never budged and after the fall of the wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union and the dismantling of the European welfare states and the decline of their Union movements, he just kept going with the exact same program, doing the exact same thing his entire career. And I think the essence of the Sanders phenomenon is this serious reconsideration of what's possible based on this prematurely retired idea of politics that are actually still relevant. And this isn't to say nothing has changed, but a lot of people are coming around to the idea that it's still the same fight it was before the end of history. It's the same conflict with the same players. It's capitalism versus humanity. Um, Bernie was just, like, never phased by it. He he kept the faith, and that has a real chance of paying off. And if you think about it, like, what a romantic. Everyone else came to the conclusion that it was the end, that, like, socialism was this um, brief glitch in human history and Bernie knew that it was the end of history or the end of class politics that was the the actual glitch, and that eventually we'd come back around to it. Um, So I don't want to jump the gun because I agree with Adolf Ray Jr. that there's no left in America and hasn't been for some time. I used to wonder why there weren't more Bernies, and I think I've arrived at the conclusion that the end of history was just unbelievably traumatic in ways that we've had a lot of difficulty reconciling with. Um, there was an article in Damage magazine called "Everything All of the Time" that refers to this as an inability to mourn defeat because that would require confronting like a very painful loss. Um, and the Freudian psych- psycho like ah uh, compliments of Carl Abraham says that the mourners become manic and will, quote, devour everything that comes their way. And like, what a better diagnosis of the post marxist left, right? Um, They talk about the devouring mania to just refer to niche intellectual trends that have been employed to essentially procrastinate um, confronting that defeat. So like intersectionality, Trotskyism, mutual aid and solidarity economy, communes, horizontalism, occupation, autonomism, post-Marxism, post-work insurrectionism, post-political populism, fully automated luxury communism, anything to avoid acknowledging our loss. Um, And the article concludes by saying that uh, most of these people didn't live through the 60s, but uh, what they are mourning was a lack of political possibility, a time when the left was, quote, clear thinking about the nature of economic exploitation and still to some degree had organic links to a working class base. That political power is what is being unsuccessfully mourned today. And a successful reconstitution requires moving the mourners past their temporary media, freeing them from the influences of those with true circular insanity. You know, like professional leftists. Um, So uh, Bunga spends a lot of time trying to break from this lifestyleist leftist nostalgia, which I think is a great project. But I do believe that in America we are in desperate need of a reconciliation with our past. Um, and I don't mean our past as, like, Americans or American history. I mean our past as socialists, like a, a past where we believed that history wasn't yet written. And I think with Bernie, we can allow ourselves sort of to mourn, maybe not even for communism or socialism specifically, for but for a past that really actually did hold more promise and potential and ambition than our present. And this isn't to say there isn't still a lot of lingering pathology endemic to the movement. Um, The hangover of this inability to mourn persists in, you know, the movement as a kind of what I call political pedophilia, most recognizable as the tendency to seek out both youth and novelty manifesting in what Americans might call activistism or what Brits might call movementism, like chasing whatever the progressive zeitgeist is to make us appear relevant, thereby abandoning the most timeless principles of Marxism and class politics. To conclude... With Bernie, we've seen some acceptance of our past and our losses. And it's not nostalgia, it's moving towards resolution. Because you can't escape grief, not if you want to keep moving forward. Not if you want to reclaim those virtues and victories and analysis and ambition of a left tradition that I believe that we, in our grief and confusion, abandoned too hastily. Our hearts are broken, so we tried a bunch of weird eat, pray, love, hippie bullshit in an attempt to not deal with the pain, but now we are ready to love again. And there's no school like the old school, class war.
13: This is what I think is um, the turning point, or the one that I noticed. There's always a turning point, and nine times out of ten you miss them. I think it was about 1986, and it was at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, and I wasn't there, um, but I read the documents afterwards. And it was Jean-Francois Lyotard giving a talk at the uh, ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Arts, where my mother used to work as a, a concierge. I think. Um, but um, in 1986, uh, a man had come from France called Lyotard, and he was given a talk. And in the audience was the um, uh, doyen of uh, English Marxist literary studies who was called Terry Eagleton. And Eagleton took issue with Mr. Leotard, And there was some kind of spat between them that you kind of knew was important as you read it, but not, couldn't write, quite work out why. And roughly speaking, it turned on this, was that um, uh, Leotard was saying, um, the avant-garde is dead. The avant-garde is dead. And it was kind of uh, wrapped up in a thing that um, kind of surprised me, but I shouldn't have been surprised. It said uh, the vanguard is dead. He was saying the avant-garde is dead because the vanguard is dead. Those are two different uh, modes of being. One is political activism, where you have vanguards, uh, and the other is uh, artistic practice, where you have avant-garde. And most of us up until that time, I thought we thought – If you were in the kind of political Marxist vanguard, then you were intrinsically sympathetic to the avant-garde. And sometimes when you were feeling a bit lonely, I guess, and um, the vanguard looked a bit um, shaky and cold, you could take a certain amount of sucker from the idea of the avant-garde that, you know, even if um, the vanguard is a bit hard to locate, at least we're on the side of the avant-garde The uh, transformative and in the um, uh, kind of radical listings paper of the time, City Limits, it was all all the design was derived from Alexander Rodchenko to connect us to the uh, um, the revolutionary spirit of 1917 uh, in in the not quite so revolutionary um, 1980s London uh, lefty scene. And then this French guy popped up and said, by the way, that's all rubbish. You know, that avant-garde, that's as big of a myth as the vanguard. I didn't like either proposition. Uh, and I guess uh, Terry didn't either because um, he was there taking issue with this thing. Um, But as I can put it all together, I kind of realized or I began to realize, took me a long time to work it out, but I began to realize that the game was up. You know, there was something about the the Leninist model that Mr. Leotard was making a reasonable point that um, the um, the transformational vanguard, the differentiation in the working class, that meant that there was a kind of leadership uh, uh, that would inspire the, the masses, that would be a kind of conveyor belt between the Marxist perspective and the broader mass of people, uh, that that was gone. And uh, as he uh, said, you know, with a certain amount of sense, your vision of the world where there is uh, artistic dullness, generally speaking, a kind of cultural dullness, and yet a, an avant-garde breaking through is the same mythical kind of world that, um, uh, that he was critiquing. All of this uh, kind of cultural critique, analysis of language, analysis of ideology, all seem to be part of, at that moment, a kind of, a project of revolutionizing society and everything. And weirdly, very quickly, turned into something very different, which was um, uh, post-structuralism. And that was the, the kind of core uh, set of ideas, which not, uh, not only did they make themselves uh, universal, pretty much, the philosophy of the time, but they did so really without anybody noticing. And it kind of uh, um, post-structuralism as a, as a philosophical outlook, uh i think it's so persuasive really because very few people understand that it is a philosophical outlook or even a proposition and um much of its assumptions are kind of smuggled in uh, to contemporary uh, thinking often through the medium of radical thinking and the the core presupposition the core assumption of the um the post-structuralists was the one that uh, uh leotard had explained a few years earlier in 1979 in a speech in Canada, when he said the the age of the grand narrative is over, meaning that um, that big story where there was a protagonist and he said it doesn't actually matter which the protagonist is. Is it the um, rational subject or the proletariat or the the feeling romantic being or whatever? He's saying that all of those stories were uh, fundamentally uh, broken and that um the proper attitude was towards was one of scepticism, scepticism towards these grand narratives, these big stories with this dynamic subjective agent at the core of them, and I felt that we were suckers. Basically, we were um, we were really like turkeys for Christmas because all of us radicals were taking this the most radical piece of recent thinking. We were treating his treaties against. The avant-garde, as the avant-garde, you know, this was the latest in thinking from France, uh, and not really understanding that, that what it was was it was it was uh, disaggregating or or in, invlo- involuting or whatever the word is, a kind of turning inside out of Marxism, essentially of the Marxist theory, whose core uh, proposition is that um, there is no human agent. All of the Marxists, you know, all of the radicals were taking this as the latest word, the latest word in radical thinking from France, and and the meaning of it was, uh, we can do nothing. You know, that our critique will leave nothing disturbed. It will only kind of illuminate the the darker corners or the the more obscure corners, and it would uh, cease to have a transformational uh, uh, meaning, which is what it meant, I think, really, to dispense with the avant-garde And what the avant-garde was really a kind of a MacGuffin for was uh, the vanguard, the idea of a a vanguard transition of really a, a transformatory role Uh, for thinking and acting
3: okay excellent and i love that you've tried to subvert even our proposition here (laughs) by choosing an event that actually predates no 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 you that predates 1989 that even pre just 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 as a way of saying that you were there first but i like it that was actually quite uh quite vanguard as i've made perhaps even avant-garde in your (laughs) selection
10: so i think
14: the most symbolic event although event is kind of overselling it it's really just a bit of statistical data that I find highly symbolic it was, to me, released two months ago in late September, in which a Flemish newspaper uh, called De Morgen put out a poll in which it showed the results for the whole range of political parties. But this was uh, barely three months after um, Flanders itself had had an election, which had kind of radically reshuffled, but also reinforced trends that were present there before where the Flemish nationalists maintained their position, or they lost sensitively, but they actually lost to a radical right-wing party that has been going strong since the late 1990s. But what's so interesting about this poll is that actually, historically, it's a very unique poll, because it's the first poll in which the Christian Democrats, who once used to be the most powerful party, uh, in Flanders, but also in Belgium, are polling under ten and uh, under ten percent. So you have equally dramatic results for the Socialists and even for the Green Party in that poll. But the really revolutionary thing to me is that uh, under ten percent result for the Christian Democrats, which I think is a historically, sorry, historically unique moment that's really unforeseen and hasn't been shown before. And the way to draw the world historical importance of this, I think, is by contrasting. That resulted the Christian Democrats to their post-war status, in which the Belgian state, or even the Flemish state itself, was often called the CVP-State. So the CVP was the old name for this Christian Democratic Party. But there was literally this sense that the Christian Democrats possessed and were in charge of the state. To such a degree that they even fused with it and that it was hard to distinguish the party from the state now this has a kind of totalitarian ring to it but it was also mainly that the state had such a strong connection with a certain civil society uh, a whole set of unions associations and churches university networks that then arranged the actual accommodation and organization of that state which meant that if you looked at election results in the 50s and 60s You maybe have 20% for the socialists in their heyday, you have some minor parties on the right, liberals who might get 15%, but the Christian Democrats are consistently scoring 40 to 50%. And to see an election result, or a polling result, sorry, of under 10% for a party that was once said to be in possession of the state, is just absolutely extraordinary. And I think it really shows that the 20th century is completely dead and we're moving into something new, uh, which we haven't fully figured out by now.
3: And of course, this isn't just about Belgium, but I guess your contention would be that this symbolizes something, a a phenomenon, a trend that's happening across Europe.
14: Yes, absolutely. And I think Belgium or Flanders in this case is just the most explicit example of something you can extrapolate across context. And what's so interesting about the relationship with 1989 is that we tend to see 1989 as the end of history. So it's a kind of caesura. It's a kind of cutting off point in which things take a completely different direction. But I actually think it's um, the start of what you call a zombification process. It's a death of something that's been there all along and it's just taking us 30 years to realize that the patient has died and that the patient is now ripe for burial and that all kinds of morbid symptoms are are rearing their head. Because the interesting thing is that the 80s and even the 90s saw really exuberant kind of civil society romanticism or even a cult of civil society on both sides of the Iron Curtain. So you have that in Western Europe where you have all kinds of French thinkers celebrating spontaneity and society against the state, while in Eastern Europe you have this dissident moment where these Polish and... Hungarian civil societies are celebrated as counterweights against totalitarian Soviet state. What you actually see is that the civil society that's celebrated in the 80s and 90s is incredibly precarious and actually quite slim. And what you see in the 30 years after that is a complete hollowing out of those classical civil societies, mainly through the decline of party democracy and the complete effacement of the union movement. And it's only, I think, post-2008, but even more explicitly, post 2016 that we see the political fallout of this process and I think now you can really see the zombies appearing or um, the attempt to really let something new grow on this dead soil
3: is there any factor that you would point to which is a more positive one rather than merely the decline or absence of something that was previously there
14: so the story in Flanders is very markedly one about the rise of postmodern politics in action so I think postmodernism as an intellectual movement had its heyday in the 80s and 90s, but there was an aspect to it that was purely ideational in which it was very academic and it was about academia observing the outside world. While now I think postmodernism has really arrived in politics and it's invaded politics to such an extent that it's it's just a practice. It's a kind of natural environment in which people thrive. And you can see this very clearly in the party that won the last elections that it is still polling as highly which is the NVA or the NVA, which is the Flemish Nationalist Party. And what's so interesting about this party is that it's the richest party in Western Europe. Its capital equals the sum of all the Dutch political parties' capital. So they own imme- immense amounts of money. They have a very, very expansive real estate empire. They've built up. A- in the last 30 years or last 20 years mainly but they actually don't have any classical civil society institutions to which they're connected as a party and you can see it is that they have 30 people working in their media division so you have one person who's paid full-time to look after their twitter accounts you have one person who just does facebook i mean just imagine this as a full-time job is just like taking care of an online account for a political party then they have two people who manage the television appointments then you have one a person who just manages a relationship with the main student press. So this party is a permanent digital war machine that is actually very bad at policy and has an enormous personnel problem because it just can't get the right people in government, but which is so geared towards sound bites and clicks, which has the most intimidating Twitter presence, which is literally building up a sort of alternative civil society online And as I said, this is just postmodernism in action. It's no longer a a kind of ideational diagnosis of what's going on with the world. It's just postmodernism as a political praxis. And 1989 gave us some kind of foreboding of what was coming at us, but I think there were too many of the classical structures left to actually make this void visible. I mean, yeah, so what Peter Mayer has called the void left by party democracy is now only becoming explicitly visible. And post-2016, I think that... Yeah, this postmodern politics is really coming into its own. It's maturing into something far more, far more comprehensive than anything what we've seen before.
15: So, yeah, I, I guess I've chosen uh, Greta Thunberg's uh, transatlantic yacht voyage the, uh, on the the Monegasque Royal Yacht that that she wanted to avoid the greenhouse gas emissions from from flying across the Atlantic. Uh, although, you know, in the end, uh, there were six uh, flights, I think, that, were, that had to be uh, taken by the the Royal yacht team uh, so there was, there was some level of hypocrisy there but I'm not really interested in that so much as how it symbolizes the utter sort of drop or like extinguishment in um, optimism in hope about modernity uh, the possibility of a of a fully technologized modernist uh, egalitarian vision climate change is absolutely a, a real issue but instead of looking at it as a as a challenge as a technological challenge and in, interrogating what are the aspects of of the market that inhibit or can inhibit uh, possible responses to to climate change to to to, to mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions the assumption here is there is no possible way we must eliminate aviation, um, and this, you know, the, the, this event happened just a few weeks before there was a there was a sort of major finding uh, that um, aviation was much worse uh, for the climate than than we previously thought. Uh, really prompted a series of you know rending of garments by uh, by a lot of academics and so climate activists, NGO folks, saying you know maybe we because we fly a lot maybe we should actually like just not taking flights anymore, like take take an inspiration from Greta Thunberg. There's these campaign groups like uh, Flying Less or uh, Plane Stupid in the UK, although they, they they haven't been around for a while. But certainly ex- Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, in this period, Roger Hall, one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion, was wanting to have a conversation in, within that group about whether they should um, uh, use drones to uh, to disrupt flights at Heathrow Airport. The only possible response to this this very real challenge of climate change is a retreat uh, from modernity an abandonment of this, like truly amazing thing that humans had achieved. um, Thanks, you know, the Wright brothers and and so on and so forth. Um, And and there's no possible interrogate, the the possibility of interrogating um, uh, market uh, structures and how those can be uh, challenged to to better develop um, clean uh, aviation fuels. is 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 just off the table it's not even it's not even imaginable and i just found this really really um really symbolic um compared to sort of nine decades ago with amelia Earhart, where in a very similar sort of period of you know fairly dark times uh you know this this is the um this is the depths of the the great depression uh there is um however there is this enormous optimism about what humanity can achieve um, uh, what, uh, what modernity can do, if only that we would, you know, share it out more equally. And I think Amelia Har- Earhart sort of symbolizes that to some extent in the sense that she's, you know, she's the first woman. So it is an egalitarian story as well. It's not just a story about progress it's saying, uh, this t- technology, but for, for women as well. And we, you know, as associates, we would go further and say like n- this technology, but for everyone. Um, and, and I think that, how does this tie into sort of the fall of the Berlin wall? And I, I think we have to interrogate, uh, sort of ask, why has this come about? Why, where has this, this drop in the, the, the abandonment of the, 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 the horizons of our imagination come from? And I think we have to really, you know, um, I don't think we've really come to grips with quite how victorious the neoliberal revolution of the 1970s and 1980s was. That uh, this, this, this um, I mean, atomization, individualization, the, 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 the scale of the destruction of mass organization, um, not just on, on the left sort of trade unions and, 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 and political parties, but also on the right as well, you know, charities and, um, and, and, and church groups and, and even, you know, the, the Tory party of the UK was a you know, mass organization, many millions of members. Those don't exist anymore to the same extent. And, um, I think that this, um, what Nilo Rosen basically did was that it, it, it's this utter destruction of, of, of working class power and crucially, crucially here is a cleavage of the working class from the left. And I think that, um, eco austerity, um, that's expressed by Sir, um, uh, Greta Thunberg's transatlantic voyage and the the idea of abandonment of of aviation by academics and NGOs and extinction rebellions, um, you know, maybe desire to disrupt um, um, flights at Heathrow via uh, drones is expressive of uh, of, of that eco austerity. But I also think you know, or anti modernity, um, but also you know, post modernism, identity politics. This sort of this this un- unholy trio. Uh, and holy trinity of, of, of concepts are ideological expressions of of the academy of the, the professional, professional managerial class of the middle class uh, um, resulting from this uh, severing of the working class from the left um, and i think the, the easiest way to see this is that you know if you, all you have to do is go into any sort of working class community that has uh, in in the west uh, that has suffered through 40 years of stagnating wages of austerity of deindustrialization, and then go and tell them that they need to consume less. It's just absurd uh, uh, at, at, um, that sort of suggestion, and I think that that shows how these ideas of eco austerity, um, post-modern, postmodernism, identity politics—they are. Um, you go into the class and I think they are seen immediately as nonsense whereas they they have a they have a purchase within the Academy within the professional managerial class There they're a very specific class expression and that I think ultimately um, comes from uh, and there's a material reason for that and I think that is the, the this um, the, uh, the the severing of the class from the left was a result of the neoliberal Revolution so I think there's a bit of a there's a few there's a few links in the chain here but that's why I would say that um, that transatlantic voyage, abandonment of, of modernity, abandonment of, of the incredible progress of, of, of human flight, 90 years, nine decades after the first female solo flight across the Atlantic, the other direction, I think is, um, it symbolizes
16: that. I think the, the single biggest change that we've seen is the entry of 1.4 billion Chinese workers into the global labor market. Um, And you can symbolize that with a lot of statistics. Uh, But arbitrarily, I've I've suggested to you 2015, because that's the moment where China became a net capital exporter. And that's just 36 years after it began its reform and opening up. So in 1989, inward foreign direct investment to China was only 3.4 billion. Uh, 2018, it's 139 billion. So it's a 1,202% increase. But interestingly, outwards foreign investment from China started off really small, 780 million in 1989. Um, 2018, it was 130 billion. So that's a 16,566% increase. And in 2015, that was the year where it happened for a couple of years. uh, The flows of FDI to China uh, were less than. The flows of FDI from China. So it's amazing that this developing country within the space of just a few decades goes from being basically a kind of um, mostly rural, um, agrarian economy with limited, heavy industrial development, goes from that to being this industrial powerhouse um, actually exporting capital. And I think it's China's experience is interesting because it, it is a corrective to the end of history narrative that history ends because of the triumph of liberalism in the west but in reality you know capitalist development keeps going and it throws up all kinds of new contradictions and crises so china's entry into the global capitalist market has really restructured how capitalism is organized globally accelerated the hollowing out of western industrialized economies and all the political contradictions that arise from that have so-called left behind populations and populist eruptions, and it's induced really ferocious competition among other developing economies as well. And that rapid development in China has led to massive over-accumulation of capital. So you have $4 trillion worth of reserves by 2016 and a desperate attempt to start exporting some of this capital, which is why you get this um, flip by 2015. Um, but also, a massive overinvestment crisis in the Chinese economy, leading to a profitability and debt crisis. And this is what's really feeding into the, the new Belt and Road Initiative that people may have heard of, where there's an attempt to export Chinese surplus capacity um, and capital. And if you look over the, the period from 2000 to 2014, Chinese development financing was estimated at 354. Um, billion dollars. So it's only 40 billion less than the United States. And that investment, which is going out even before the Belt and Road Initiative was re-launched, has absolutely transformed landscapes and livelihoods in many developing countries, especially when it's been around agriculture, mining, hydropower, these kind of big ticket development projects. And that's led to a lot of resistance on the ground to um, you know, land grabbing and forced displacement, and that's led to a lot of crisis and contestation in those countries. And then globally again, uh, massive trade imbalances have emerged with most countries, and you see that now having a political impact with the onset of the US-China trade war with the potential decoupling of these two economies, but at the very least a much more hostile and confrontational environment. And that also reflects China's rapid rise um, technologically and also um, in terms of military power, which is leading to geopolitical concerns. And then if we dive back into China itself, these, this um, the intensified nature of capitalist development has led to massive social conflict. Um, initially, it was a lot of rural unrest, which was linked to land grabbing. That was very much linked to China's growth model. That land was grabbed, um, it was monetized, uh, infrastructure was um, put on it, and that led to another round of, of, of capitalist growth, so initially about two-thirds of so-called mass incidents were linked to this land-grabbing phenomenon at the local level, but increasingly it's shifting, so now the most recent data we have is about two-thirds of it is related to labour protests, and that reflects industrialization as peasants have been drawn into the cities and into often really terrible kind of Dickensian conditions, um, with very sharply rising living costs, low wages. So, a reliable estimates suggest about 130,000 um, mass incidents per year. Um, and it peaked really sharply after the economic slowdown in 2009. So, for example, labor unrest went up 300% in Beijing when demand for uh, China's exports slowed with the global financial crisis. So, I think China's entry into the global capitalist economy has to be up there as one of the most significant developments of the last 30 years, because it has reshaped global capitalism itself and triggered new forms of social and political contestation in China and all around the world.
2: So Alex, I thought about this quite a bit, and in our exchanges, uh, you must have seen how much I was struggling with it. And then I came up with the perfect answer, I think, for the moment that captures the past 30 years for me, And that moment is when you asked me to choose the moment that captures the past 30 years for me, and I couldn't find an answer. And that was really the moment that I wanna dwell on and develop a little bit. Because in my mind, I divide my life into two periods, pre-1990 and post-1990. And that's not because I see myself as the nexus of the International Geopolitical Order or anything like that, but because 1990 marked the end of the Lebanese Civil War, and um, that's essentially all I knew growing up. So in my mind, the world is divided into the Civil War and the post-Civil War uh, period. And when you asked the question, I think it occurred to me how flattened everything is in the post-war period in my mind, which is clearly not just what happened in Lebanon, but with the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the end of um, the Soviet Union and the fragmentation elsewhere, I, I, I think there were quite significant shifts internationally, uh, which is the larger context that you're looking at. And ironically, I think, For me the period before is has a very clear structure in my head so i can remember year by year you know uh, there's a kind of a correlation between my personal life and what's happening in politics in the world around and i can kind of reconstruct that chronologically now when it comes to the um, post 1990 or the last kind of 30 years i think there's much more um of an overlap of a model of a flattening out of a both of a personal narrative and a broader geopolitical narrative and I think a lot of that is actually um, indicative of significant political shifts cultural shifts social shifts and significant economic shifts as well and um, what? What stands out to me is how uh, overlapping and model those events are. So I am not able, and perhaps this is my personal failing to reconstruct them in any linear manner um, that makes me kind of zoom in on one moment and then identify from that, how I could reflect on those uh, bigger shifts. And I think for a lot of us, there's um, certain for example, certain personal shifts. For example, I moved around 2002 from Lebanon to Britain. So obviously that changes your prism of how you frame the world around you. But I think it's much more than that. I think with the end of the 1989 sort of uh, Cold War era, I think it also marks the end of a And and this is not something I've invented, obviously, in Marxist Central, certain end of um, progressive ideologies saw this um, uh, gradual kind of victory of history against um, uh, all opposing forces and a sense of ongoing progress. And I think I really wanted to focus on this sense of bleh or the meh that we're living now um, as a reflection, because while there were significant moments of hope, and in fact in Lebanon, we're living one of them now, um, none of them have contributed to the creation of a sustained sense of reclaiming, um, the path of history, the, a clear path towards progress, a clear path towards, uh, grand competing ideologies that will be able to take us out of the mire that we're in. And I'm not saying this necessarily from a pessimistic take, but rather um, to comment on the pernicious effect of the post-ideological world. And this is something that afflicts both right and left, I think, and center for sure today, where it makes this imagination in itself uh, impossible or tries to frustrate it. Um, so, that's really the moment that I wanted to focus on. And I can draw strands on it, um, and I can give examples. So, if we go back to the uh, beginning of the so-called Arab Spring, which in retrospect was quite a problematic term, but it was a marked a moment of um, popular uprising against all uh, established corrupt authoritarian regimes. And uh, we, 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 we see how, compared to the historic stale of those events, what materialized um, was again a model. So you look at Libya, you look at Syria, you can recognize the destruction and the devastation, but you can't salvage anything from the wreckage in terms of constructing uh, a path forward. And the same could be said in terms of all the moments and the movements. and the protests that have happened and some of them were like you, you actually i have to work hard to remember that there was something called occupy wall street um so you kind of this manifest this um lack of durability of moments of hope and moments of attempts of change and the lack of accumulation that i think is quite an important word of uh, um it's almost like there's a sense of um, uh, a repeat. It's almost like when you remake a movie rather than when you accumulate social struggles towards a higher purpose. Now, you can argue that there is a, more of a, an awareness of um, the impact of neoliberal policies and the path that capitalism has been taking and all the manifestations in political and economic oppression and injustices that have happened but I'm a bit skeptical about that because I think those moments are quickly hijacked by what I call the culturalist mindset, largely on the left and its bitter image on the right. So there's a, a kind of almost systematic attempt to frustrate any ability to return to a clearer path of history, by which I mean a clear political struggle that capture captures all the frustrated energies that this current system is not being able to satisfy. It's not being able to satisfy them materially and it's not being able to satisfy them in terms of their aspirations. And we can see that in all sorts of um, attacks on um, artistic freedom, freedom of expression, all of that. So we're living in a moment that is quite pernicious and quite able to reproduce its Lack of direction, I would say, lack of momentum to transform things and sustain itself. And and that is what I wanted to pick up and talk about.